following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Blessed is the man who walks in your favor, who loves all your words and hides them like treasure. In the darkest place of his desperate heart, they are alive. A strong, sure light Sometimes I call out your name But I cannot find you I look for your face But you are not there Come to my trouble 
deepest heart. Touch me and make me soul. Oh Lord, I cannot speak this word today without an anointing from your Holy Spirit. Lord, the word I speak will fall to the ground and die if you don't plant it. So Lord, I ask you now to have your way in this house, dealing faithfully with each heart. I pray in your holy name. Amen. He was a world-famous artist. He illustrated children's books particularly. He was looking for a model. He was looking for a man who could model Adam before the fall. And so he was looking for a young man who was full of life, who was full of godliness who radiated the presence of the Lord, and he found just such a man. His name was John. John became a pastor and came to speak at a high school where I was attending. As he spoke about the great men of the scripture and their complete dedication to the Lord, the Holy Spirit began to move over the assembly of some 350 students. And students began to weep. Students who were cynical, ungodly, began to weep. The troublemakers began to get up out of their seats and move forward as though on signal, though none had been given. And on their faces in the front began to search after God with loud cries. I sat there, astonished. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. John stopped preaching. He said, do you young people have anything to say? And all they lined up and began to take that mic and confess their hardness of heart and their sins and their rebellion against God. They began to get right with God. Faculty began to come in from all over the campus. They couldn't understand what was going on. God was moving in this house. This was revival. The meeting went on through all of that day and late into the night. Word began to spread out like fire that revival had come to Mount Vernon Academy. They tried to continue with classes the next day. The teacher stood in front of the class and tried to lecture while the students wept. 
they finally gave up and said, go to the chapel. They didn't know what to do with them. And there John preached again. There was more weeping before God. I went up to one of my friends, Glenn. I said, Glenn, you're not weeping. You've not confessed any sin yet. Are you hardening your heart against God? He said, I want nothing to do with this. This is foolishness. And he hardened his heart. All over that chapel assembly, teenagers were either hardening their heart against God or they were crying out to God. There was no in-between place. And those of us who were earnest in seeking after God made our way around that chapel, earnestly seeking and praying with young people our age, asking them, will you submit to the Holy Spirit? He's here amongst us. Some did. Some didn't. After a period of time, things began to settle. And a normal kind of life began to go on, except lives had been totally changed by the presence of God. The rebellious troublemakers were no longer rebellious troublemakers. They were earnestly seeking after God. They were reading their Bibles. They were talking about spiritual things. You could see prayer going on all over the campus. You'd be walking to, to lunch or to dinner. And you'd see young people on their knees around the campus praying. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. God had come on this campus. Some years later, I was a senior in college. And I was invited to be a part of a steering committee for a national youth congress that was to be held in the old Cow Palace in Atlantic City. I knew there was only one man who could come and deliver the keynote message. That was John. I hadn't been in touch with him. I hadn't spoken with him since that day, Mount Vernon Academy. John agreed to speak. We had high expectations. We prayed and we waited on God. Soon that great cow palace was packed with young people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young people from all over the country came. And they all came hoping to be touched by God. John came and stood before that vast audience and began to preach. And from the first word out of his mouth, I knew the anointing of God had left this man. Oh, he still told the stories. He still preached with those smooth, eloquent words. But there was no Holy Spirit power in his preaching. The anointing of God had left him. And there was no revival. I was heartbroken. 
Some years later, after having graduated from seminary, I was assigned to a church in Maryland. And the director of our pastoral affairs was John. And things were happening in the conference that I belonged to that were simply not right. I went to John. We knew one another well. I sat with him in his office and I said, John, somebody has got to confront the president of our conference. Because what he's doing is wrong. He was known as a German shepherd because he bit God's people. I said, someone has to confront him. Will you do it? He said to me, Ray, if I do that, it will cost me my job. Now understand, by this time in his life, John was no longer handsome. He was no longer smooth or articulate. He was an empty shell of the man he had once been as the model for Adam. He'd made choices. He had hardened his heart against God. He chose money. He chose to sell out. He had no anchor for his soul. And so he drifted with the tide. The word of God says in Hebrews, the third chapter, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Hardening of the heart is caused by a choice made over and over and over. When the Spirit of God begins to convict us, even as a teenager, and we decide to harden our heart against that word, the Spirit of God begins to be grieved from us. And the final end will be an empty shell sold out to darkness, even while having perhaps a form of godliness. With whom was he angry for those 40 years? Verse 17, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief, disobedience, sin hardens the heart. I don't know if you've watched any of the news this week. I had just a few minutes to observe some of what was going on in the world. The newest form of rebellion amongst teenagers in America is to stand with fist raised against the almighty God of heaven and to declare you do not exist. And to dare the Holy Spirit to come and do anything to their heart. To claim they are atheists and do not believe in the living God of heaven. And this has been given wide coverage 
this week in the media. There is a place that we are being called to. There is a place of response we are being called to. And if we choose to harden our hearts, the Spirit of God will finally leave us and we'll walk in darkness and destruction. I could stand and for the entire sermon today tell you of story after story of people, men and women, boys and girls, who have hardened their heart against the call of the Holy Spirit, who always would say, I don't know. Those are the favorite words of those who choose to harden their hearts. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, you do know. It's a conscious choice to harden one's heart against the presence of the Holy Ghost as he comes and appeals to us. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, and again, you understand the context of this word rest. It is the reposing down place. It is the place of intimacy with God. If Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua had been able to bring God's people into God's bedroom, but he wasn't because they hardened their hearts. God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the Sabbath is Jesus Christ. He is the place of rest. We are being called into that intimate place with God. The Sabbath rest. Where we absolutely cease all of our own labors. Including our own attempts to make ourselves righteous. All of the strategies to somehow make yourself behave. The place of rest is where we're fully in Jesus Christ. The word says, try with all of your power to enter into that place of rest. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Try to enter into a place of stopping. But that's the truth. And the trying that we have to do is the dying out to our rebellion and hardness of heart against the Lord God of heaven. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Your heart today is laid bare before almighty God. He saw what you did in private this morning. He'll see what you'll do in private tonight. It's all laid uncovered 
and bare before Almighty God. Now the question is, will you harden your heart and pretend that you don't know? Pretend that you don't know. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, look, all of the help of heaven is available for us. Some of you are facing such incredible pain and anguish with your husband or your, or your wife or your father or your mother, your children. You see no way through. There is only one way through, and his name is Jesus. There is no other way through. There has to be a recognition that God has uncovered our hearts. He sees their condition. And now he's saying, will you open your heart and let me pour out into you the treasures of heaven, Jesus Christ? Or will you harden your heart and say, I don't know. Maybe later. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this. What's he talking about? He's talking about how Jesus learned obedience by suffering. How he learned to reverently submit instead of hardening his heart. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So today the body of Christ is filled with infants, and infants teach them strategies for for success strategies for decision making three simple steps you can almost hear the baby cry and many are dying for the lack of nourishment and food but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil as we do not harden our hearts, we have to make decisions. You see, holiness or sanctification is not just a concept. It's a particular. But what do I mean? The Holy Spirit comes and he says, don't read that anymore. And in my heart I say, why would God care if I read that magazine? Why would God care if I, if I eat this? Why would God care if... No, sanctification and holiness is hearing the Holy Spirit speak to our heart, item by item, and choosing to submit that thing 
to the Holy Spirit, instead of rising up in our hearts and hardening them against the word of God that's being spoken to us. Now, in this church, we don't have a list of do's and don'ts, and we never will. Because for one man, it may not be wrong, but for another, it's death. Because it depends on obedience to the word of the Holy Spirit in our heart. So we're not looking for people to conform to some list of do's and don'ts. Rather, we're looking for people who will conform to the voice of the Holy Ghost as he speaks to them regarding the particulars of their life, their situation. And each time we're spoken to by the Holy Spirit and we turn aside from that, we are hardening our hearts and refusing to enter into the rest of God. We are to be trained by making decisions about whether or not we will listen to that call of the Holy Spirit or whether we will resist that call and rebel against him. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 says, okay, therefore, let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ and let's go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. In other words, let's no longer talk about repentance from ritualistic sins. He was addressing people who were following Jewish customs. They didn't quite keep the Passover right, and they were repenting of that. Or they were not doing some sacrifice that they were supposed to be doing. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, let's stop repenting about this stuff. It's just ritual stuff. We now have a new covenant we're entering into. This was the great struggle in the New Testament church. How do we let go of the form and follow the substance? How do we let go of the, of the type and follow Jesus, the antitype? How do we walk in Jesus? So he's saying, look, let's not lay those foundations again of faith in God of instruction about baptisms, of laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. You know, let's not get into discussion again about when the rapture is going to happen. You know, let's, let's not fight about stuff that won't do anything about getting you into heaven. Let's deal instead with those issues that are weighty that make the difference about whether you go to heaven or hell. Some of you said to me, Pastor, why aren't you preaching on the book of Revelation? There's only one message I have from the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. I saw the last chapter. Jesus wins. So now my heart doesn't want to fight about the time schedule for Jesus winning. Now I just want to not harden my heart against the Holy Spirit so I can walk in obedience to his commands. I want the power of the blood to flow. So he's saying, let's go on. Now he says, God permitting, we're going to go on to the deep water. Well, do you know what the deep water is? I've read this passage so many times when I was immature in Christ. I didn't understand if he's 
If he's going on from these things, what is he going on to? Well, the answer is very simple. He's going to go on to righteousness. He's going to go on to sanctification, entire sanctification. To be made holy by Jesus' blood. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. And I have to tell you, I've always preached these as fire, saying, look, obey the Lord. But today, I don't want to do that. I want you to see what's behind these passages. Sometimes we see more by going behind than we do by standing in front. Verse 4, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Well, you can see why I'd want to grab that passage and just swing the sword and say, look, are you barren? And are you going to be burned? But that's really not the hidden secret of this passage. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back. Well, let's not concentrate on if they fall away. Let's instead concentrate on the place that is possible for us to move into in the Lord God of heaven. There is a place that is so glorious in Jesus that once we have stepped into that place and then you walk away, you can't ever come back. Now, a question. Why was it that Satan did not have Jesus die for his sin? Because he knew. He had dwelled in the presence of God. He had partaken of the glories of heaven. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so when he fell away, he was condemned. He was cast out of heaven. He knew with a clear mind exactly what his choices were. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, we too can step into that place with God. There is a place so far beyond anything any of us in this room have even yet begun to imagine. We have settled in a low land. And in that place struggled with, shall I harden my heart against God or shall I obey? And sometimes we harden our hearts and sometimes we obey. And we think this is what God has for us. This is not what God has for us. Listen to the description of what God has for us. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. In other words, God has enlightenment for us. 
He has such enlightenment for us that we will see heaven. We will see the throne of God. We will see the cross as though it were happening right before us. It will be the most real thing we've ever seen in our lives. You read Reese Howells. He says, I saw the glory of the risen Christ as really and truly as if it were before my physical eyes. Now, this is what God has for us. To be so enlightened that we can have no question ever again about the glorious mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, I don't have to wait until I get to heaven to taste the tree of life. Jesus Christ is the tree of life. And he is now available for me. And I can partake of the tree of life with such reality that I would never again desire the food of the world. You see, where we struggled so much is we see a grape about that big around. But the children of Israel, they didn't see a grape that big around. They saw one branch, one bunch of grapes so big that two men had to carry them. They saw grapes bigger than my fist. Now, can you imagine making a a meal out of one grape? (laughs) Now you understand what a grape is. We're used to these little tiny bites of holiness. Oh, Jesus. We're used to these little tiny bites of obedience to Jesus. And he's saying here, I want to give you a whole great big bite enough to fill you now when you begin to feast on jesus in this way how could you ever turn back to the garbage can and scrounge for another meal i tell you honestly if you were to go into my house right now you would smell the aroma of the most fabulous pot roast in the world Oh, that pot roast is simmering right now. I plan on being there soon. (laughs) Now tell me, would I dare leave this house and go over to CVS to the garbage can and root through the garbage can after church? Do you expect to see me there rooting in the garbage can, knowing that I have a pot roast waiting for me at home? No, you wouldn't even begin to imagine that I could do such a thing. And how do I know the pot roast is good? Because I've often partaken of it. I tell my wife I would have married her just for her cooking. (laughs) Now, when we have feasted on Jesus in this manner, can you even begin to imagine that we would desire to go to the neighborhood garbage can? And root through to find some half-eaten sandwich with mold on it. And we would pick that up. Now, do you imagine that a man can go and sit down at his computer and begin to look at pornography, that half-eaten sandwich filled with maggots, when the glorious Jesus is there to fill that man's hunger? You see... We've made the Christian faith one of smallness. We've made it one of 
of discipline and beatings. Oh, I tell you today, when we begin to feast on the things of heaven, and we begin to be enlightened regarding the things that God has for us. And he begins to bring us into his glorious presence. And we begin to feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And we respond to it. And we say, Jesus, I love you. And we begin to come into his bedroom. We will not ever want to leave again. Thank you, Lord. Verse 5, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. The powers of the coming age. When you begin to experience the power of God stepping into your life in miraculous, life-changing ways, what would make you think you would ever try to go anywhere else to receive some weak medicine? You see, the reason it's so hard for us to choose between Jesus and the world is because the world is all you've known. And the world looks very big when, when it's all you know. But when you begin to feast on the things of God and you begin to be drawn into the intimate bedroom of the Almighty God and you begin to experience there the outflowing love of his heart and you don't harden your heart against that, you could never go back to the world again. You've been utterly spoiled for heaven. Hallelujah. I want to tell you today, I've been spoiled for heaven. I've, I've spent too much time in the prayer closet receiving the gifts of God. I've spent too much time walking in this dry and barren world, seeing the glories on the other side. I can't ever go back. It's not a choice I have anymore. See, once you've been brought into this and you no longer feast on little particles, but instead you have whole meals laid out before you, and the joy of your heart is flowing because of the goodness of God, how could I ever go back to that darkness? And see, this is the issue. If we harden our hearts, we'll not feast at the table of the Lord. If we harden our hearts, we will not feast at the table of the Lord. It requires entire consecration. Not caring anymore what the world is going to say to us. Not caring anymore what the results are. Not caring anymore about anything except dwelling and living in the presence of Almighty God. By the blood of Jesus. That's what matters. Being filled with his presence. Knowing that he is my deliverer. In every situation. God is my deliverer. Now some of you. Have come to the conclusion that. Only you can deliver yourself. 
and you've decided that money is the way you're going to deliver yourself. You just have to do the overtime. You have to get another job. Money is the problem. I've never in my life seen money to be the true problem. Because I know that the table I've been invited to feast at has an abundance of everything necessary. I'll never forget the day Pastor Jan and I took out all of our bills. The electricity was going to be turned off. The mortgage had not been paid. We had no food in the house. We had no way to earn enough money fast enough to rescue us. We were at the end. And we were hungry. We took all of our bills out of the file and we laid them out on the floor before the Lord. And we said, Lord, we have created these bills by our disobedience and by the hardening of our hearts. And we repent. In dust and ashes, we repent. Now we put these bills under your blood and now recognize that only you can pay them. And we'll now wait upon you to direct our steps to pay these bills. We stood up and we said, what have we done? These aren't our bills anymore. They're God's bills. We're God's children. And the most unusual things began to take place. The man knocking on our door, asking us, I'm embarrassed, sir, but God told me to come to your house and bring food. Do you need food? Oh, yes, we need food. And then he came with armloads, 16 bags of groceries. After we'd eaten, another knock on the door. A man saying, I need to introduce you to someone. Well, who is it? It's an attorney. I don't need an attorney. Well, I'm supposed to introduce you. Okay, I'll go with you. Sit down in the attorney's office. The attorney turns to me and says, Pastor, what can I do for you? I don't know, sir. I don't know why I'm here. He said, I was supposed to come and meet you. I don't know why I'm here. Sits back in his chair with a little smile. Pastor, do you need money? Oh, yes. Got up and went to his safe and opened it. Brought out a briefcase. With a quarter of a million dollars worth of gems. Pastor, take these and sell them. I'll give you 15% commission. I don't know anything about gems. I wouldn't know one gem from another. Doesn't matter. They're all in baggies. They're all priced out. Just take them and sell them. That's what God's saying. All right, I'll take them. We took the gems. We had to wait till the repo man was no longer sitting out front of our house. 
We drove our car away carefully, making sure he didn't follow us. We went to Barstow, California. There was a big gem show. We took that briefcase. We walked into that gem show and we went to the biggest tent and we said, we have gems for sale. Are you interested? He said, sure, come back after the show. We walked around with a quarter of a million dollars worth of gems all day, scared to death. Somebody'd steal them from us. That night, he went through all the gems, sorting this baggie here, that baggie there. When he all finished, he said, I like your gems. I'll take these. Let's add them up. We added up the price. That man bought $50,000 worth of gems that night. Cash. I took the briefcase the next day. Watching for the repo man. Went to this attorney's office. And he paid me 15% of $50,000 in cash. It was enough to pay you the mortgage, the electric bill, the gas bill. Paid off all of the debt. And then we had no money left. But God said, these bills are mine. He sat us down at his table. And he started feeding us. I'm here to tell you today, if you will take all of your sin, and if you'll put it under the blood of Jesus Christ, and you will give up all concern about any consequences, and you will begin to feast at the Lord's table, you will be filled Everything that is causing you to chafe and to rub yourself raw. If you'll lay it down at the cross. If you'll enter into the rest of God. You'll have an anchor for your soul. Listen. Verse 17. Chapter 6. Hebrews 6. Verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. What are those two things that God has offered to us? First, a promise. Second, an oath. In other words, it's not just a promise of God. It's a covenant promise of God. And if he doesn't fulfill his covenant promise, he has to die. That's what a covenant means. God entered into a blood covenant with us. It's all been offered to us. Holiness. Righteousness, sanctification, freedom from all sin. This has been offered to us. Keep your finger right there. We're going to come back to it. But look at Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans, the fifth chapter. We'll begin with verse one. I want you to see this word justified really needs to be translated. Having been made righteous. 
the fact that it was tr translated justification indicates that in this NIV and in the King James and several others, there's a very strong Calvinistic influence on the translator. If you look at Moffat, you look at others, you'll see that this word is really translated made righteous. Now, let me read it for you. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And my question to you tonight is, do you stand in God's grace? Or have you rebelled and hardened your heart because things haven't worked out the way you thought they ought to work out? Have you hardened your heart or have you entered into this grace that he's offering you? And if you will begin to enter into that grace, he will open such vistas of glory that you will never again be tempted to go back to the garbage can. The maggots will lose their allure. Do you suppose a homeless man enjoys going through the garbage can? No, he wants to go sit down at the pot roast. The fact that we go sit down with the pornography or we go sit down with the rebellion or we go sit down with the anger or we go sit down with some other sin of our heart is simply saying either we don't know the glorious banquet of the Lord or we have hardened our heart. And the word of God today is don't harden your heart. Watch verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You know what the word Melchizedek means? Righteousness. Righteousness. The king of all righteousness. That's who Jesus is. And if we're going to be like him, we're going to enter into that bedroom with him. We're going to enter into his intimacy. We're going to eat at that awesome table of his blood and broken body. We're going to Feast on the things of Jesus. And as we feast on those things, our hearts are changed. We're transformed into his likeness. We no longer want the things of this earth. They all grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.